Well, good morning. Morning. Let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11 is where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback uh, underneath a chair around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and flip open with us to Daniel 11. We are actually finishing a sermon series uh, this morning. So we've been walking through the book of Daniel and we will finish this morning. Uh, We started in June. So I always get a little nostalgic when I'm thinking about ending sermon series. We started in June. Uh, If you know anything, though, if you've been around for a while, you know that's really not that long of a time for a sermon series. So this was record time for a book. Now, I wasn't here uh, a couple weeks ago when Michelle got up to preach, and, and I wasn't able to listen to the podcast last week, before last week when I preached. And so uh, I did hear, though, that she was mocking me a little bit and um, comparing herself to, to me. And so she, if you aren't aware, went through a whole book in one Sunday, a uh, short, tiny little book, um, and kind of... So there's this kind of eternal competition between the two of us where, where we just try to outdo one another. And so my challenge to Michelle is to preach a sermon series longer than one that I've preached. And then, okay, <laughs> two years for the book of Acts, then we'll, uh, we'll be on equal footing here. So uh, we'll, finish up Daniel. we'll finish up Daniel this morning. I'm excited to do so. My name is Mike. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at the church. Glad you're with us this morning. Um, Daniel 11 is where we will uh, start this morning. We'll go through Daniel 11 and 12, which is a lot of verses. We won't look at every single verse in here, um, but we'll kind of hit some highlights as we head towards and zero in on what I think is the heart of the book of Daniel uh, and just a really beautiful place for us to camp out uh, this morning as we gather and as we worship. So the book of Daniel is full of these remarkable stories uh, of a group of Israelites, Daniel and his friends, who are in a foreign land, they're in Babylon, surrounded by a foreign culture, foreign language, foreign gods, and the task they have is to remain faithful to the God that has called them, to their God, to the God of Israel. And so the book follows along different stories as Daniel and his friends remain faithful um, in the face of great temptation, in the face of great danger, sometimes in the face of death, um, and then we get to see some visions that Daniel has had, some visions of victory, some visions of God ultimately fulfilling his promises that kind of motivate them to be faithful in the present. So we've kind of compared our situation to the situation of Daniel and his friends, to the Israelites in exile. Like them, we've been called by God, but like them, we're also waiting on future promises from God. We're in a sense exiles. First Peter would call us exiles. We're in a sense surrounded by a world that's not our own. We're waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And in the meantime, there can be temptations. There can be distractions. There can be lots of different things that try to get us off track as we follow Christ. If you've tried to seriously follow Christ and tried to obey him and tried to repent of your sin and try to get out of these patterns of, of this, the old life of, of greed and, and lying and, and, and all the, the, the sins and things that scripture lists out, what you'll realize, I think, if you're being honest, is that it's very hard to do. I mean, we're just kind of, we're just kind of drowning in temptation and, and, and um, in a world around us that would just try to drag us away from the life that Christ has come to offer us. It's not too unlike, I think, the situation that Daniel and his friends found themselves in. Now, in the second half of Daniel, what we found is there are these visions. Daniel has these dreams, and he sees God's promises coming true in these kind of symbolic, metaphorical ways. And this gives him hope. This gives him the ability to be able to stand up to the face of the king and say, I won't obey your laws if it makes me disobey my God. And it allows his three friends to be able to say, throw me in the fiery furnace. That's fine. And, and we see over and over and over again throughout the book of Daniel that God, his, his hope, his promise, his light comes in these dark situations. So you have this dark situation where Daniel is um, face to face with the king and is about to be thrown into the lion's den. And in fact, he goes into the lion's den and there God's light 
finds him and he's rescued. And you had this dark situation where I think his three friends are thrown into the fiery furnace and in that, that darkness, God's light finds them. And I think you'll see a similar situation here in Daniel. In the darkness of the world that we sometimes experience, God's light, his, his kind of ridiculous, marvelous, remarkable hope finds us. So Daniel 11 is where we'll pick it up. The vision Daniel has is going to be explained to us. Uh, in Daniel 10, uh, if you'll remember with us, Daniel kind of introduces the vision. So the angel comes to him. We've spent a couple of weeks talking about that angel and, and kind of all the different spiritual realities that this passage might present to us. And then in, in chapter 11 and 12, we actually get the content of the vision. So this is the last vision of victory that Daniel has uh, as he closes out his book. So he says this. It's very historical, very detailed. So we'll run through it. I'll try to make it as painless as possible for you. Okay, if you're history buff, I'll try to give you a little bit, um, but we won't go through painstakingly um, the way that Daniel does for us. Daniel 11, verse 1. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So we're in the time where the kingdom of Persia is ruling over Israel. Verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall rise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So if you know anything about history, this is how kind of the history of empires progresses. You have Persia, who's this dominant world player, and then Greece comes up after them. Then a mighty king, verse 3, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. So again, if, if you know anything about history, what happens is, Persia, which had been ruling most of the world, including Israel, gets overtaken by Greece. And there's a young man in Greece who rises to power very quickly and rules the world in a way that really the world hadn't seen until then. His name is Alexander. Have you heard of him, Alexander the, the Great? Look at you guys, world history buffs in here. You were paying attention in 10th grade, all right? World history. Alexander the Great comes, and Alexander the Great kind of takes over the known world at the time, starts this process of Hellenization, which is bringing his own Greek philosophy, Greek language, Greek way of life, Greek gods to the entire world. He kind of starts to, to culture the entire world in the way that he has been brought up. But what happens to Alexander is he dies really quickly. It's actually a pretty uh, uh, kind of fascinating historical story. Alexander dies at a real young age, and he has not set up his kingdom for, for his succession plan. Okay, he was not prepared to die so quickly, and so it kind of goes into chaos when he dies. You've got this huge empire, and now a power vacuum. And if you know anything about how these things work, okay, they're going to stuck to it and try to grab their own piece of power. The kingdom is originally given to his brother, who's mentally challenged, and then another friend of his. They're quickly murdered, okay? Not a good position to be in, the, the person that you're just given the kingdom after this big guy goes down with all these big military generals who want to be in charge, and so they get murdered, and the four generals of Alexander take over, and they split the world up into four parts. There are these four kingdoms. This is what he's talking about here in Daniel 11, verse 3. This mighty king, Alexander the Great, as soon as he is arisen, as soon as he comes to power, it's so quick. His kingdom is broken and divided into four winds of heaven. Not to his sons, though, not to the people who it was supposed to. His kingdom was plucked up. It goes to others besides these. Verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. And his authority shall be a great authority. Now, what Daniel starts to talk about is a king of the south and a king of the north, okay? These two kings. These are two of the four parts of the world. Now, here's why this is important. Here's how this plays into Daniel and in the Israelite situation. Um, 
Judah, the country of Israel, is right between the king of the north, this kind of power group, and the king of the south. The king of the north would be the Seleucids or the Syrians. The king of the south would be the Ptolemies, the Egyptians, okay? And the 3rd and 2nd century BC is really just a history of Israel being tossed back and forth between these two power groups, between these two dynasties. And it's not a good time for the Israelites. Just like the Israelites, when they're in Babylon, it's not a good time for them. They're being oppressed. They're being tempted. There are all these ways for them to to stop being faithful to the Lord, for them to succumb to the pressure, to the danger around them, to the death that so often looks them in the face. Well, this time period after Alexander continues much of the same. I mean, it's just a bad time to be one of God's people. There's all these dangers. There's all these temptations. Again, I think not unlike the world that you and I sometimes can live in. So you've got the, the people of Israel going back and forth, back and forth. Now we'll skip some verses Again, if you wanted to get out your world history book and go through, this is actually a fairly straightforward account in Daniel 11. Uh, out of all the kind of visions we've gotten, this matches up pretty nicely, pretty clearly um, to history. But it's heading towards somewhere really important, okay? So if you go to, with me to verse 21, what we're skipping over is the kings of the south, the kings of the north going back and forth and making deals and having battles and those kind of things. Again, it matches up pretty closely to world history without a whole lot of um, rationalization in verse 21 though in his place shall arise a contemptible person this great evil figure will arise to whom royal majesty has not been given he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken even the prince of the covenant and from that time that an alliance is made with him he shall act deceitfully and shall become strong with a small people Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty arm, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall be fallen and slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. Here's what's happened, okay? Here's the historical summary. One from the north, one from the Seleucid dynasty, called Antiochus. A king rises up, wages war with the Ptolemies, and takes control. And this is a brutal time for the Israelites. This is one of the darkest times in their histories. You you read about what he does in verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kidim will come against him. He shall be afraid and withdraw, shall turn back and be enraged. And watch this, he'll take action against the Holy Covenant, against the Israelites. He'll turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So we know this. One of the things that Antiochus did is he was really hardcore about trying to get the Israelites to to accept this process of Hellenization to let go of all the things that God had called them to do and start doing the things that the world was doing. Okay, Eat the pork. Worship these gods. Stop holding on to these old traditions and come in and act like the rest of the world. And so one of the things he did was he um, put an abomination in the temple. And this enraged the Jewish people. He, he actually takes an idol of Zeus and puts it inside the temple. And for a Jewish people group, there's really nothing more 
evil that you could have done. There's nothing more degrading. There's nothing more defiling. This is what the Jews call the abomination that makes desolate. Uh, if you're familiar with Hanukkah, um, the Jewish holiday, okay, this is, comes from this kind of area in history, this time period in history with Antiochus. Eventually, a guy named Judas Maccabeus, whose nickname was the Hammer, which is awesome. Okay, I had nicknames as a child. We're not going to get into them. They weren't cool. Um, but Judas had this awesome nickname, the Hammer. He rises up with his military force and goes against Antiochus. Um, and rebels against him because Antioch is doing um, these real bad things to the Jewish people. In verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God shall stand firm, and the wise among the people will make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. Again, here's the picture, the same picture we've gotten throughout all of Daniel. God's people are currently experiencing a dark time. It's a tragic time. It's a hard time to follow God. It's a hard time to remain faithful to him. There's temptations everywhere. The threat of death hangs over their head. Yet, a group will remain faithful. A group will be able to follow. As you keep reading through Daniel 11, you see the situation kind of gets worse and gets worse. It gets bigger and bigger and darker and darker. And then in chapter 12, I want to draw your attention um, to the first four verses in chapter 12, which I think are the theological climax of the book of Daniel. I think this is where all the action is headed towards um, so far in the book of Daniel, these first four verses in chapter 12. Um, if, if there were a handful of verses that you wanted to memorize and kind of put inside of your soul, I think these would not be a bad option for you. Daniel 12, verse 1 through 4. It's this bad time for the Israelites, but here's the hope. Here's what they're looking forward to. Here's the vision of victory. Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time, as it gets worse and worse, shall arise Michael, the chief, the great prince who has charge of your people, the archangel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered and everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now here's the vision of victory that Daniel has. He says, one day God will through his army of angels come and decisively act in creation and right all that's gone wrong with his world and the way that this this decisive action is going to take shape is through what we call the resurrection of the dead so so he says this he says those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth which kind of brings back echoes of genesis 1 you remember in genesis 1 when god creates man he creates man out of the dust out of the dust of the earth he creates man and those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth, which is a euphemism for death, to sleep, which is kind of a, a euphemistic way for the Hebrews to say you are, you're dead. It's better than, you know, your cold bodies on the ground, in the coffin, slowly degrading, right? You're sleeping. It's this real kind of um, euphemistic way of talking about death. Those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth will awake, will come back to life. Those who were once dead are now alive again. And then they're separated, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise, those who are God's people, shine like the brightness of the sky above. They're made into this beautiful thing. 
And those who turn in many directions, those who were a part of God's plan of keeping people faithful, they'll be like the stars forever and forever. This is the, the victory. This is the logic of God's salvation for Daniel. This whole book has been moving towards in the very place of death, in the grave, will come life. New life, new creation, where God once created life out of nothing, he now creates life out of death. Resurrection. This is a theme that is found throughout the scriptures um, as kind of the, the bedrock of the Christian hope. Um, as kind of the logic of how God saves. Um, God's creation is infected by death, is, is enslaved by death, and his promise from day one is to redeem it, to undo death. To take what has died and make it alive again. And in many ways, unfortunately, we have, I think, subverted that hope. I mean, we've kind of ignored that hope. We've kind of changed that hope into to maybe something that makes more sense to us. And so in the, in the biblical narrative, again, it's this kind of physical hope that one day bodies are going to come out of the ground. One day the things that God created would be recreated. The resurrection of the dead. Um, if you're anything like me, though, the kind of Christian context that you grew up in played religion out like this. The goal of religion was for you to go to the right place after you died. And there are two options. Usually one is heaven, which is this kind of disembodied state, kind of your soul floating in heaven among the clouds with the harps and the angels. And then the other option was hell, kind of this fiery state where, where all this bad stuff was happening, kind of eternal torment, um, this kind of conscious torture for all of eternity. And the goal of religion, the whole, the whole name of the game is for when you die, for you to go on the right path. Okay, um, for you to go the right way and not the wrong way. And so kind of the image in the mind, right? You go up to St. Peter's Gate. He's got the little book, kind of like you've seen Daniel. You're either on it and you're good or you're not on it or you're bad. Now, this analogy totally flopped in the first service. But does anyone remember a movie, I think it was with Disney a long time ago, about a tooth fairy? Uh, and it involved like heaven and hell, kind of like the afterlife. And the tooth fairy kind of took you to heaven or took you to hell. There's a big elevator. No one, oh my gosh, yes, one person, here we go. Everyone else, just close down for a couple minutes, okay, this is just for you. Um, but it was kind of this horrifying image I had as a kid, right? It was this elevator, and you either went up to heaven, or you went down, and every time you died, you'd go in the elevator, and you'd like, wait, see like what button was pressed. And it was just kind of horrendous, and that's kind of how we, we picture it, right? That's the name of the game. When you, in, as an individual, die, you go into the right place, or you go into the wrong place. Now again, I think... The picture you get in scripture is a little bit different um, than that. It is a picture of all of creation being remade and then being separated out into that which will remain, the righteous, and that which will, will not remain. Um, I think you see this throughout the scripture. So I want to read you a story, uh, one of my favorite stories. It comes from a book uh, called Second Maccabees, and it's actually about Antiochus. Uh, it's about Antiochus and the situation that he was involved in. And it has all these themes in it. It's perfect. It's got this theme of this persecution by Antiochus. And then it's got this hope of the resurrection. I want to show you how this, this theme plays out in real life, okay? So here we go. Story time with Pastor Mike. Um, this is from Second Maccabees uh, chapter 7. On another occasion, a Jewish mother and her seven sons were arrested. The king was having them beaten to force them to eat pork. This is King Antiochus. Then one of the young men said, What do you hope to gain by doing this? We would rather die than abandon the traditions of our ancestors. This made the king so furious that he gave orders for huge pans and kettles to be heated red hot. And it was done immediately. Then he told his men to cut off the tongue of the one who had spoken and to scalp him and chop off his hands and his feet. While his mother and six brothers looked on. 
After the young man had been reduced to a helpless mass of breathing flesh, the king gave orders for him to be carried over and thrown into one of the pans. As a cloud of smoke streamed up from the pan, the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die bravely, saying, The Lord God is looking on, and he understands our suffering. Moses made this clear when he wrote a song condemning those who had abandoned the Lord. He said, The Lord will have mercy on those who serve him. Now, after the first brother had died in this way, the soldiers started amusing themselves with the second one by tearing the hair and the skin from his head. They asked him, Now will you eat this pork, or do you want us to chop off your hands and feet one by one? He replied in his native language, I'll never eat it. So the soldiers tortured him, just as they had the first one. But with his dying breath, he cried out to the king. Watch this, his cry here. You butcher, you may kill us, but the king of the universe will raise us from the dead. You butcher, you may kill us, but the king of the universe will raise us from the dead and give us eternal life because we have obeyed his laws. The soldiers began entertaining themselves with the third brother. When he was ordered to stick out his tongue, he quickly did so. Then he bravely held out his hands and courageously said, God gave these to me, but his laws mean more to me than my hands, and I know God will give them back to me once again. The king and those with him were amazed at his courage and at his willingness to suffer. After he had died, the soldiers tortured the fourth one in the same cruel way, but his final words were, I'm glad to die at your hands, because we have the assurance that God will raise us from death. But there will be no resurrection to life for you, Antiochus. And the story goes on and on until all of the boys are dead and the mother dies. They all remain faithful till the end and they all have this taunt of resurrection. It's this kind of immortal story where, where these little kids are having their, their hands cut off and they're saying, you can take my hand now, but I get it back. I mean, it won't be long until I'm, I'm back from the dead. I'll get my hand back and, and it won't be good for you. I mean, we're all going to be raised again from the dust and we want to be raised to life. Well, you'll be raised to shame, to contempt. This is a theme that you find throughout the scriptures. I think, again, this is the bedrock of the hope that fuels Daniel. So in the book of Daniel, as, as Daniel faces the lion's den, I think this is the vision that gives him the strength to be able to go into the lion's den. So what if the lions rip my arms off? So what if they maul my face? I'll receive this all back when God raises us from the dead. Daniel's three friends, when they go into the fiery furnace, so what if we're reduced to ashes? We'll receive life again. Not some spiritual, disembodied life in heaven, but real, physical, actual, 100% life. It's a theme you find throughout the scriptures. In fact, if you would, go with me to Revelation chapter 20. Uh, right at the very end of our scriptures, you see the book of Revelation echo Daniel 12 in pretty clear ways. It's John, the Apostle John, describes his vision of what the end of all of creation will be like, what the end of history, God's salvation history, will be like. Revelation 20, we'll pick it up on, in verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead... Great and small, now standing before the throne, and books were opened. There's a resurrection. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. There are two books that are opened up. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death itself is punished. 
And this is the second death, John says, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The same picture here, okay? There's a resurrection. The dead now are standing before Christ once again. There's books that are opened up. And there's this beautiful kind of promise here that, that God's people have their name written in his book. That those who have followed and been faithful to God have their name in his book. And, and there's a separation. Some are resurrected to life. Some are resurrected to the second death, to be thrown into the lake of fire. And then in chapter 21, this beautiful passage, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Recreation, earth itself made new, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Here's John's vision victory. Here's his vision of the end. It's very similar to Daniel's here. The dead are raised. They're separated out. And there's new creation life for all of eternity. Now, I think we lose some things as Christians when we, when we miss out on this kind of physical resurrection hope. I think there are some things that, that kind of get away from us. I think there are some ways which we are hurt and we are disadvantaged when we allow the biblical hope of resurrection to be replaced by some kind of vague hope of immortality or, or a spiritual existence for all of, all of eternity. Um, I'll highlight two here this morning. The first is this. Resurrection is what you would call fighting language. Resurrection is activist language. Resurrection is protest language. It's revolt language. It's the language of people who say, we're not okay with the status quo. And we're going to work towards what we've been called to work towards. And there's nothing you can do to stop us. Your greatest threat, death, no longer makes us afraid. No longer induces fear in us. And I think you've seen this again. If you watch kind of Christian culture, we've kind of gotten away from this physical idea of, of resurrection, new creation, and gone to this kind of um, pie in the sky kind of enlightenment idea of re religion, which is, again, just for your individual life when you die, which way are you going to go? And what we've seen is we've created a kind of a context of Christians who are very kind of quiet, very kind of pious. We kind of go in our corner, kind of wait out our days. Because God doesn't really have a plan with this earth. He doesn't really have a plan with our bodies. We need to make the right decision so that we'll go up on the elevator and not down on the elevator. And then let's just try to make ourselves as clean as possible. Let's have as comfortable as a ride as possible. And we talk about this throughout the book of Daniel. This is not the life that Christians are called to. Christians are called to a life of revolt, not resignation. We're called to a life of spiritual activism, of eschatological activism. People who stand up and say, this is not right, and we're going to fight for what is right. We're going to work for what is right. We're going to use our resources and our time and our abilities to bring God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And if you kill us, you kill us. We've got nothing to lose here. We'll come back. Take my arms. You didn't give me the arms in the first place, and, and I'll get them back, the little boy says. It's, it's fighting language. Again, the second way I would highlight is in a similar aspect. I think resurrection is the only thing, really, that's able to motivate properly the Christian call to obedience, even in the face of death. I think it's the only thing that's able to sustain us in the, the ultimate threat um, that might come against us. It's the only thing that would explain martyrdom. 
So if you're anything like me when you were a little kid, uh, I would go through these kind of thinking processes. So I was waiting for Jesus to come back, uh, wanted him to come back, and obviously again thought when he came back or when I died, I'd go be in heaven, okay? And kind of a different experience of life, this kind of spiritual disembodied uh, existence with the angels and the harps and all these kind of things. And if you're anything like me, one of the things that I constantly would think about or say and kind of run through my mind is I want Jesus to come back and I want to go to heaven, but not yet. I mean, I want to do this first. Then I want to go here first. And if there was like a big, if we had a vacation coming up, I'd be like, I'd pray. I mean, I even, Jesus come back after we go to Disneyland. Okay. <laughs> There's no Disneyland in heaven. I just really want to go to Disneyland. If you could just do this for me, we could be really solid. All right. You and me. Or just come back after I do this, or after this, I get to experience this, or this, or this, or that. Again, we realize as human beings that there are good things about creation. There are good things about having bodies. There are good things about having relationships here, having adventures, eating good food. We realize there's this aspect of creation that, that you miss out on in a world where, where it's gone, where it's been destroyed. And if the options before somebody are to live a quiet, clean hidden life and go to heaven after you die or live a dangerous life, a life where you sacrifice and risk and put yourself in danger, but there's really no difference between the two, I think we're all going to choose this quiet life. I mean, we're, we're all going to say, okay, well, somebody else can be a missionary. Somebody else can sacrifice. Somebody else can sell their house. Somebody else can, can sacrifice their time and their money to do those kind of things. I'll just check off the box that gets me to the right place after I die. But if you realize there's a goal for creation, we're moving somewhere, there's a mission to be joined. And, and the resurrection means you're not going to miss out on anything. There's not one experience of creation that you're not going to be able to have. Your task right now is not to, to be comfortable, to be as comfortable as you can, to enjoy as much as you can this, this world. It's to be faithful. It's to follow God's plan. And know that eventually, for all of eternity, you will enjoy it. You'll enjoy it to the fullest. I think those are, are two big different things. Again, we've, we've talked about this. Christians, often we get stuck in this vacation lifestyle. Where again, we think we're just waiting out our days. We're on vacation. And the scriptures are going to paint a different, different picture. We're in war. We're in battle time. We're sacrificing right now. Not because we don't think we're going to get it back. Because we know we'll get it back. This is the hope that sustains us, that fuels us forward. So we go back to Daniel 12. And we finish off the chapter. You have this hope here of resurrection. In the darkest times, in the darkest places, in the grave, God brings life. God brings light. There's this beautiful theme throughout the Bible, which I believe we'll sing about in a couple of minutes. There's that God makes beautiful things out of dust. Those who are sleeping in the dust will awake and shine like stars. Like stars forever and ever. In verse 5, Daniel looked and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the other side of the bank of the stream. So we're back at the original vision. Um, Daniel's had his vision. The angels come to talk to him. And someone said to the man clothed in linen. So there are two angels talking. Daniel's going to overhear them. Um, he asked, how long, verse 6, shall it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Which again, as we've talked about, is a symbolic way of saying it's going to start, then it's going to seem like it's going to last forever. So one time, and then times plural, and then half a time. Then it's going to end kind of suddenly. This is in God's hands. This is in God's timing. 
And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from that time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. If you're asking, what are these days? What's going on here? The answer is no one knows. Okay? And it seems like Daniel himself doesn't know. The book is written. The point here is that God knows, right? There's this time appointed for this. There's this sure hope we have in the future that these things will come true. And this final parting word to Daniel, he says this in verse 13, But go your way till the end. You will rest, you'll die, and you will stand, and you'll raise, and you're allotted place at the end of the days. This is the hope that fuels Daniel, and this is the hope that fuels you and I as Christians. Philippians 3 says um, what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, he's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious bodies. And so we work as citizens of heaven to colonize earth. We work to bring his kingdom and his love and his justice to the world around us. Why? Because one day we'll be here fully. One day we'll be transformed to experience it in resurrected bodies. On the new heavens and the new earth. 1 Corinthians 15 says this has started. We've seen this plan start in Jesus, the one resurrected before us. And, and we wait until the ending, until all of his enemies are, are defeated and under his feet. Death being the last one. This is the hope that fuels the Christian life. This is the vision of victory that gives power and courage for, for you and I to be able to, to be faithful in a world that sometimes is, is difficult to be faithful in. In a world of death. In a world of sin. In a world of our own failures. In a world that sometimes when you're honest and you're looking around, you, you can't see the way out. You can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. The scriptures, Daniel... The church calls us to look at Christ. He calls us to look at Christ raised from the dead. and calls us to see in Christ our future, our promise, our hope, that one day you and I as well will be, will be raised. And the goal of all of this is not to make us quiet. It's not to make us kind of peaceful waiters. But it's for, like he says here, for us to be able to go our way. For you to be able to go out and be faithful. For you to be able to go out and fulfill God's call in your life. For you to be able to go out and, and perhaps be one of these people in verse 2 in verse 3, who's not just shining like the brightness of the sky, but shining like the stars forever because they've turned many to righteousness. There's an interesting kind of picture here of, of people who, who perhaps have joined in God's plan, who perhaps have taken on a more active role in God's mission to bring heaven to earth, his kingdom to, um, to his creation. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for the scriptures you've given us. We thank you for the book of Daniel. We thank you for our time uh, able to, to study and walk through the book of Daniel. We pray that you would create in us uh, a heart and a soul of courage and faithfulness like Daniel and his friends had. Father, we pray that the vision of resurrection that so fueled him would fuel us, Father, that we would be people who proclaim and live out life even in, in dark situations, that there's no... Um, dark situation, Father, where we won't be able to celebrate light, be able to find the light, be able to bring the light, be able to work towards the light, Father. We, we pray that um, 
when we see death around us, when we see sin around us, when we see sin inside of us, that we would remember your son, that we remember our hope and our future, and the victory that we have through your son, Father, that, that would sustain us in these present times uh, as we seek to be faithful to you, as we seek um, to follow you and to know you in a world that, that often it's so hard to do so, Father. And so we celebrate um, your work through your son and in your spirit, and we pray that you would Bless us and keep us in that work, Father, that we might know you uh, and love you more. It's in your son's beautiful name that all God's people said.